0: Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one woman, one mic show. In this episode, we will take a close look at 1976, check in with the collective mood of the nation on the occasion of its 200th birthday, and examine some of the number one songs of that year. Before I do that, just a quick thank you for either being a loyal listener, or if you have just discovered the show, thank you for hitting play. If you like what you hear, tell someone else about it, and if you are so inclined, head over to FTR70.com, click the Patreon button, and throw a few bucks into the tip jar. You will not hear any ads on this show, but there are still bills to pay, and that is how you can help keep the show going as we look ahead. If not, Simply listening and giving a good review on your podcast app is also very much appreciated because it does help others find the show. Gerald Ford. He is the only person in United States history to serve as both vice president and president without being elected to either office. He was president of the United States of America as its 200th birthday approached. That Ford was president on the occasion of America's bicentennial seems oddly appropriate for America in 1976. Ford was the living symbol of both the chaos that the decade had brought, much of which was baggage from the 60s, as well as America's attempt to move on. He was popular, not controversial in the slightest, and he wanted the nation to turn the page. If he thought pardoning Richard Nixon for any crimes Nixon may have committed, And this pardon occurred on September 8th, 1974, exactly a month after Nixon resigned. If he thought that that was going to help the nation turn the page, he may have miscalculated on that. Saying that America's long national nightmare was over did not make it so, and for many Americans in 1976, they were still pissed at Ford for what they perceived as letting Nixon off the hook for his role in Watergate, and they were going to show it at the ballot box because 1976 was an election year. Less than two years out from Watergate and Nixon's resignation, uh, we were less than a year out from the fall of Saigon. We were smack dab in the middle of a shaky economy, much of that because war is very expensive. We were in the midst of the women's liberation movement. We were trying to figure out what it meant to live in the post-civil rights era and actually live within the legislation that had been passed in the 60s. For all these reasons, celebrating our nation's 200th birthday was complicated. Not everyone felt like we had much to celebrate, or that we even should celebrate. What did America's bicentennial mean to those who descended from slavery and still lived with racial discrimination? What were Native Americans to think of this celebration? There's no set answer to these questions. African Americans, some sided with Jesse Jackson, who said that black Americans were still not free and called for a boycott of bicentennial events. Some sided with the widow of Malcolm X, Betty Shabazz, and got actively involved in bicentennial planning. Some activists in the Red America movement celebrated the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Little Bighorn, which you might recall is where General George Armstrong Custer met his maker and died in South Dakota. And then some Native Americans joined in local 4th of July celebrations. I bring this up because the 4th of July and Independence Day might mean one thing to you and another completely different thing to your neighbor. That was definitely true in 1976, when for some people, it just felt inappropriate to have a big blowout celebration, given everything that had happened in the nation over the previous years. To others, a giant birthday party and hosting the Winter Olympics in Denver, Colorado, seemed like just what we needed. Now, some of you might be racking your brains trying to remember the 1976 Winter Olympics and what the Olympics were in Denver. Well, no. The IOC awarded Denver the Olympics, but the people of Denver said no thank you. There were environmental concerns, and perhaps of more importance, there were major money concerns, because Denver was in no way, shape, or form prepared to host the Olympics, and maybe getting it there was going to cost way more than the $5 million figure the people of Colorado were told. So voters said no thank you, and the Winter Olympics were given to Innsbruck, Austria. Now, Los Angeles tried to get the Summer Olympics, but those games were awarded to Montreal. Surely things were going better with the federal government and the commission to plan the national bicentennial events. No. From 1970 to 1973, the plan was to have an expo in Philadelphia, which would be the heart of the bicentennial celebration, and then there would be bicentennial parks in each of the 50 states. The short version to that story is that the partisan political maneuvering and the cost of a federal celebration doomed those plans when Nixon was still president. It was too expensive, and those plans were scrapped, so states and local communities were pretty much told just to figure it out. And so they did, by piecing together grants, some federal funding, donations, state and local money to have parades, picnics, concerts, that sort of thing. It gave it kind of a nostalgic small-town feel. The 4th of July was always a big deal when I was growing up because it is also my brother's birthday, and I remember cutting out coupons from the newspaper that you could use for good deals at firework stands, you know, like 20 smoke bombs for a dollar or 10 packs of black cats for $5, things like that. But on Independence Day 1976, me and my brother and my cousins were all dressed in shirts that looked like flags because that is how we rolled in small-town Nebraska on America's 200th birthday. I also remember the music of that time, and when I look back at the Billboard Hot 100 charts for 1976, it confirms what I recall about turning on the radio then. Pop music was a big tent. The segmentation of radio into strict formats was not quite happening yet in the top 40. So you have pop, soul, disco, country, country-ish, rock. It was all there. I can also see how pop music was reflective of the culture of America in 1976. For example, if I said Breaker Breaker 1-9, what's your 20? I bet a fair number of you would know exactly what I am asking. I am using CB slang asking your location. America in 1976 was in the midst of a CB... Or citizens' band radio craze. This craze can be traced back to OPEC and the 1973 oil crisis. In October 1973, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries issued an oil embargo on countries that supported Israel in the Yom Kippur War. The United States, along with the UK, Canada, Japan, and the Netherlands, were the first countries to be hit with this embargo. This is going to push the price of oil up so high from about $3 a barrel to about $12 a barrel that we are going to see very high gas prices and gas shortages. If you're old enough, you no doubt remember the long lines at gas stations and maybe only being able to get gas on any given day if your license plate number ended with an odd or an even number. Unfortunately, that chaos is going to happen again, in 1979. High gas prices and a gas shortage is problematic for everyone, especially for truck drivers. To add to the problem, the national speed limit was set at 55 in an attempt to conserve gas. This is just not practical for truck drivers who are not simply out for leisure drives. They need to get their goods from one city to the next in a limited amount of time, so they were understandably not happy about any of these developments. Truckers used CBs to communicate with each other about where to get gas, but they also used them to report to each other on the location of speed traps or accidents, or simply to talk to each other and break up the monotony of the day or the night. CBs operate on the airwaves like radio stations, so there were rules to follow, like not using your real name and especially no swearing. The FCC was very strict about the no swearing. So how did the CB go from being a vital tool for truck drivers to our family station wagons in the 1970s? In 1973, Bill Fries was working for an advertising agency in Omaha. He helped create a TV commercial for Old Home Bread featuring a truck driver named C.W. McCall and a waitress named Mavis who worked at the Old Home and Filler Up Cafe. That commercial won a Clio, the highest possible award for a advertising a commercial or advertisement, and would never be made today, as Mavis pretty much seduces C.W. and kept him quote warm as toast, while a blizzard raged outside. You can look it up for yourself on YouTube and see what I mean. Still, Bill took C.W. McCall as his stage name. And under the name C.W. McCall, he released a single in 1975 called Convoy. By the way, he co-wrote that with Chip Davis, the guy who started Mannheim Steamroller. Convoy is a time capsule of trucker life in the mid-70s. You get the slang, but you also get the story. This is a fun song in a lot of ways because of the slang and the twang. But it is also a protest song. It's a protest against the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit toll roads, and the hard times that had befallen the trucking industry. Rubber Duck, the narrator, leads a group of truckers that grows to include all sorts of vehicles. Here's a sample of the lyrics. There's armored cars and interstate tanks and jeeps and rigs of every size. Yeah, them chicken coops was full of bears and choppers filled the skies. Well, we shot the line and we went for broke with a thousand screaming trucks and 11 long-haired friends of Jesus in a chartreuse microbus confused. Chicken coops are way stations. Bears are the highway patrol. Swindle sheets are log books that were usually not accurate because truckers drove many more hours than they were supposed to because they had to. The song also taps into the kind of the flipping the bird to authority that many Americans are so fond of. Here is a bit of convoy.
1: Oh, yeah, breaker one nine. this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, Big Ben? Come on. Oh, yeah, 10-4, Big Ben, for sure, for sure. By golly, it's clean, clear to Flagtown. Come on. Yeah, that's a big 10-4 there, Big Ben. Yeah, we definitely got the front door, good buddy. Mercy sakes alive, it looks like we got us a convoy. was the dark of the moon on the sixth of June in a Kenworth pulling logs. Cab over Pete with a reefer on and a Jimmy hauling hogs. We is heading for Bear on I-10 about a mile out of Shaky Town. I says, pen this here's a rubber duck, and I'm about to put the hammer down.
0: In case you're wondering about some of the lyrics By there, the we it's, we're going to rule this truckin' Convoy, not what you might have been thinking he was saying, because if he said what you thought he might have been saying, it would have never been on the radio. Convoy was released as a single in November 1975. It did not take long for Convoy to catch fire. It was number one, on the Billboard Hot 100 in the second week of January 1976, and it was already number one on the country chart by then, where it sat for six weeks. Rolling Stone named it as one of the top 100 country songs of all time, coming in at number 98. It even inspired a movie, but the 1978 movie Convoy, not, not nearly as good as the song. It also did not take long for everybody to want a CB. The next thing we knew, moms and dads and their station wagons hauling kids to the Grand Canyon or Six Flags or wherever could also communicate about Smokies or gas or just get in on the fun. Some of you might recall the 70s drama Family on ABC. I was not allowed most of the time to stay up and watch, but I recently discovered that it is on Tubi, so I'm circling back 40-plus years later And watching Family, lo and behold, one of the episodes is about Buddy, played by Christy McNichol, and her new CB hobby. How 70s is that? At one point, about half a million people applied for a license with the FCC every month. Then the FCC said to hell with it. The agency could not keep up with all the applications. I think CBs were popular for the same reason that everyone carries around a pocket computer called a phone today, 24-7 communication and entertainment, and information. Also of note in country music in 1976 is that Austin City Limits premiered in January on PBS. Over the years, it has featured more than country, but country music is at its roots, and with this move, we can see how country music is no longer regional, it's national, I discussed this at length all the way back in Episode 3, Bittersweet Home, Alabama. Dolly Parton also gets her own TV variety show in 1976. It didn't last long, but it matters because for Dolly, it's part of her journey to crossing over to pop, and I firmly believe pop music crossing over to meet country. Did you ever see that episode of Glee where Emma thinks Afternoon Delight is a song that celebrates the Bicentennial? Well, in Emma's defense, she is not the only one who thought that because the theme music for Dan Rather's coverage of uh, the bicentennial, all the, the pomp and circumstance for America's 200th birthday, his theme music during all that coverage was Afternoon Delight. Is it the sky rockets in flight part that gets people thinking that? Afternoon Delight was written by Bill Danoff, who with his wife, Uh, Tavi Nybert co-wrote Take Me Home Country Roads with John Denver. The title of the song comes from a menu at a cafe that offered afternoon delights. That was in 1974, before there was even a band called Starland Vocal Band. It took about a year of playing with the lyrics to turn it into a song. Danoff said, Lines and metaphors just started coming. I don't know where Sky Rockets in Flight came from. Maybe a comic book. My songwriting process isn't linear. You just grab things and try to put them together like a Rubik's Cube. He said the music was in part inspired by Rod Stewart's Maggie Mae. Just getting the song right was only part of the process for Danoff, because remember, Starland Vocal Band was not a thing. Taffy said she knew that she and Bill were good singers, but not great ones. But as she said, they knew some great singers. So with the addition of John Carroll and Margot Chapman, they have a beautiful four-part harmony. Still, it sounded too straight, as Danoff put it. In comes legendary producer Phil Ramone to help give them the sound they wanted. Let's just stop for a minute here. Phil Ramone, who produced the album Still Crazy After All These Years for Paul Simon and 52nd Street for Billy Joel produced Afternoon Delight. Add in Russell George, a musician with a jazz background, who saw or heard the future when he heard the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967. After that, he said, you know what? I'm going to teach myself to play the electric bass. And by doing that, he gave himself a new career, 20 years as a session musician. He was one of the session musicians Uh, for Afternoon Delight. And years later, he said, quote, these guys were folkies trying to come up with a groove that just doesn't happen in folk music. I'd done a James Brown album. I'd done LaBelle. I said to Bill, do you mind if I kick it off? My count off, a one, a two, a one, two, three, four, set up the whole groove.
1: I was gonna be here anyway
0: You're singing to that, aren't you? I know, you can't help it. Afternoon Delight went to number one on July 10th, 1976, the week after America's Bicentennial. It was not just a pop song. It was the name of bowling leagues and racehorses. Kids like me were singing the song because it was just so damn catchy, but we had no idea what we were singing about, but who cares? Starland Vocal Band would go on to win the Grammy for Best New Artist in 1977. Uh, The Grammy voters missed the mark on that one. Afternoon Delight was the peak of the career for Starland Vocal Band. There's a theory that dance music is most popular during hard times or on the heels of hard times. The idea being, of course, that we need an escape from reality, and I do mostly subscribe to this being a partial explanation, for the disco explosion that began in the mid-70s. I say mostly because I do think it is a bit too simplistic and disregards the importance of disco and its role in gay liberation in the 1970s. Still, disco is inherently happy music, and it did provide a respite from the news, which was often not good. To be clear, there was often a difference between the disco singles that were played in clubs and the disco singles that were on the radio. Of course, there's a difference between the club DJs putting together mixes to keep people on the floor and songs that were played to attract listeners for advertisers. If you had a single that checked both of those boxes, you were doing something, and there were a handful of those in 1976. Uh, You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine by Lou Rawls was a mega hit in clubs and on the radio, as was you Should Be Dancing by the Bee Gees, who were a year a year away from dominating radio in the Billboard Hot 100 in ways never seen before. Another one of those songs was Love Hangover by Diana Ross. Miss Diana Ross left the Supremes in 1970, six years after their breakthrough hit Where Did Our Love Go? This was three years after Barry Gordy, the president of Motown, renamed the group Diana Ross and the Supremes, making it clear who he believed the star of the group was. To be fair, he did the same thing with the miracles when they became Smokey Robinson and the miracles in those six years after leaving the Supremes, Diana Ross solidified her status as a star. She could act getting an Oscar and golden globe nominations for her role in lady sings the blues in 1972. And she was having a successful career as a solo artist, 11 albums, 13 hit singles. Most recently in 75, The Theme from Mahogany went to number 1. So this was not the case of a singer needing to jump on the disco train to sell records. In fact, when she first was presented it, uh presented the record by Hal Davis, the producer, she was not at all on board. She liked the lyrics but not the music. Davis understood that Ross liked to feel the mood of the music. So he had some red lights brought in, a strobe light, and he created the atmosphere of a club. She had fun with this record. When uh, you hear her laughing in the background on this record, that's genuine. And Davis left it in. This is a bit of love hangover. If there's
1: a cure for this, I don't want-
0: Hangover on May 29th, 1976, the fourth number one in Diana Ross's solo career, the most ever by a female solo artist at that time. Vince Alletti lists it as an essential disco record of 1976. The club record, club song, is an extended play version uh, compared to what most of us heard on the radio. Love Hangover was nominated for a Grammy for Best Female R&B Performance, but lost to Master of Eyes by Aretha Franklin. Diana Ross has been nominated for 12 Grammys and has zero wins. What? Billboard named her Female Entertainer of the Century in 1976. They just went ahead and called it with 24 years to go. Really kind of hard to argue with that unless you want to make a case for Bette Midler, and I would definitely listen to that argument. Let's talk about December 1963, A oh, What a Night, by Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. I find this to be an interesting song for a couple of reasons. One is that Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons are very much a product of a different era compared to 1976. They were making hit records before the Beatles. They had never really stopped performing, but had not been making hit records since the late 60s. To make it back to the top 10, Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons would make disco records. In 1975, Frankie Valley as a solo act had two hits, Swearin' to God, which was kind of sort of disco, and My Eyes Adored You, which was on the charts for six months. This led to renewed interest in the band, so it revamped Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons released the album Who Loves You at the end of 75. The title track to that, which is straight up disco, made it to number three. I also discussed way back in the first year of this very podcast, I think episode 11, that America was nostalgic for the 50s and the 70s. It just felt like a more simple time, even if much of that was a myth, and it fueled this glut of cover songs in, uh, how Sweet It Is by James Taylor and Please, Mr. Postman by The Carpenters. It fueled the popularity of TV shows like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, the movie American Graffiti, the musical Grease. When Grease is made into a movie, Frankie Valley has a hand in that because he sang the theme song. Why? Because he sounds like the 50s and pre-Beatles 60s. The other reason that I find December 1963 interesting is because it is so obviously about a guy losing his virginity. It is a song about sex, but not in the Tonight's the Night way, which is also a huge pop hit in 1976. I mean, Rod Stewart has this smash hit that some radio stations would not play because it is so overtly sexual. December 1963 is on the down low about it. Let's listen to December 1963 and what makes it such a special time for the four seasons. Drummer Greg Polchi singing the lead on Oh What a Night, uh, December 1963, Oh What a Night, released in December 1975, made it to number one on the Hot 100 in March 1976, and it stayed there for almost a month. Frankie Valley said of the shows put on by the Four Seasons, they don't claim to be an expert on politics or social change. It is pure entertainment. To sum it up, we are a people's act. That's really what it's all about. This nostalgia and this space that was free from observations about the state of the nation is what some people wanted, what some people needed. Stevie Wonder was not in that frame of mind. It had been two years since the noted perfectionist Stevie Wonder had released "Fulfillingness's first finale, and the music industry and some fans were getting a bit restless about his follow-up. He had discussed retiring from music and tracing his ancestry back to Ghana, so people wondered if he was just quitting music altogether. Release dates came and went and still no album. Stevie even took to wearing a t-shirt that said Almost Finished or something like that because he was asked about the new album so many times. It was worth the wait. 26 songs on a double LP, although he recorded hundreds of songs during that two-year period. He worked... All day, every day. Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown, which was known for being a hit factory, not a think tank, said of Stevie Wonder, he took his life experience and put it all into Songs in the Key of Life, and it worked. Gordy had done something unprecedented for him and for Motown with this record. In addition to giving Stevie a truckload of cash, he gave him complete freedom to make the music he wanted to make. Two of his most beloved songs, Isn't She Lovely and I Wish, are on that album, which Rolling Stone ranks as fourth in the top 500 albums of all time. The magazine's original review, written by disco guru Vince Aletti, was actually kind of mixed. For example, let's look at the song Black Man. It is a bit of a history lesson and not an unintentional one in the bicentennial year. First man to die for the flag we now hold high was a black man. The ground where we stand with the flag held in our hand was first the red man's. Guide of a ship on the first Columbus trip was a brown man. The railroads for trains came on tracking that was laid by the yellow man. It was 100% not a coincidence that this song was part of this album released in this year. Even if you agree with the review in Rolling Stone in its description of the ending, it is described by Vincelletti in his, in his review as, quote, shrill and aggressive, and too brutal for a piece of music. I think the song Black Man offers an important and much more inclusive look at American history. This is not outlier history. Crispus Attucks, a black man who was likely a fugitive slave, was the first American to die in the Boston Massacre. Native Americans were on the continent of North America first. Chinese immigrants did build the majority of the western section of the Transcontinental Railroad, and that was quickly followed by the Chinese Exclusion Act, our first piece of federal legislation that was designed to stop immigration. Stevie Wonder looked back in a different way with "I Wish." In the summer of 76, Stevie was at a Motown picnic. He got inspired from the picnic food and the games— and just the fun that he was having. He had just turned 26 years old, a young man to be sure, but married and divorced by that time, a new father, daughter the subject of Isn't She Lovely, and he had been recording music since he was 11 years old. He had been touring since he was 12. His childhood was brief. He was justified in feeling nostalgic. Maybe it was not even nostalgia for what really happened, but what he would like to have believed happened, not unlike America itself in 1976. At any rate, after the picnic, he went directly to the recording studio to try to recapture the vibe that a family picnic can create. At 3 a.m., he called his bass player back to the studio because he had finally worked out the lyrics he wanted. Here was the result. Listen for Stevie's sister. She's the one who says, You nasty boy, on I wish. I have the My Wish was released as the first single from Songs in the Key of Life in November 1976, nearly two months after the album came out, and it made it to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in January of 1977, and it made it to number one on the Soul Chart and stayed there for over a month. The album Songs in the Key of Life won the Album of the Year Grammy Award as well. Now let's take a look at the top 10 on July 4th, 1976. Number 10, Love is Alive by Gary Wright. Number nine, Kiss and Say Goodbye, The Manhattans. Number eight, I'll Be Good to You by The Brothers Johnson. Number seven, Get Up and Boogie by The Silver Convention. Number six, More, 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 Part One by The Andrea True Connection. So we're definitely seeing some disco here. Number five, Shop Around by The Captain and Tennille. Number four, Sarah Smile by Daryl Hall and John Oates. Number three, Misty Blue by Dorothy Moore. Number two, Afternoon Delight by the Starland Vocal Band. And number one, well, this band had started its world tour in May of 76, and the last time the leader of this band had played a concert on U.S. soil also happened to be the last time that band played a concert anywhere. The Beatles stopped touring after their show at Candlestick Park in San Francisco on August 29 1966. There were many issues with that tour, not the least of which was the fact that the technology for performing in an arena or a stadium was not quite perfected yet, and nobody could hear a damn thing the Beatles were seeing, including the Beatles, because of all the screaming. Three years later, Paul McCartney's first band broke up, and forever and ever... He has been and always will be compared to that Paul McCartney. It is hard to compete against yourself. Paul McCartney was depressed when the Beatles broke up, and Linda McCartney, his wife, said that a lot of that had to do with simply missing his friends. He missed being part of a band. When he came back to America in its bicentennial year with Wings, he was happy again. Of course, a favorite sport among music critics and fans in the 70s, was to debate who was having the best solo career of the four. Lennon took shots at McCartney's post-Beatles work, which he thought was altogether too pop. Lennon wrote How Do You Sleep, and it was intended to be a shot directly at Paul. Lennon once said to McCartney, you're all just pizza and fairy tales. But as Andrew Grant Jackson correctly pointed out, Lennon released an album of covers of oldies like Stand By Me, and bebop in 1975, so maybe he was a bit of Pizza and Fairy Tales, too. So Paul McCartney writes Silly Love Songs. And that song, which celebrates the light pop songs and serves as a statement to Lennon and any other critic of, for my money, the best pop songwriter that ever roamed this earth, met great success. Andrew Grant Jackson said, Silly Love Songs marked the end of an era. And just as he had been in sync with his generation, when they were desperate for wisdom from his mother's ghost and let it be, he was in sync with them as they just wanted to take quaaludes, live out Saturday night fever, and forget the Mele massacre. Culturally, America had reached an accord. Long hair, denim jackets, and pot were sort of accepted by the mainstream, a la the '70s show. The sexual revolution was even assimilated with 50s nostalgia when Happy Day's mom, Marion Cunningham, asked her husband, Howard, if he was feeling frisky. Billy really Love Songs by Paul McCartney and Wings from the album Wings at the Speed of Sound. It was the number one song in America on July 4th, 1976. It was fitting that one of our favorite British invaders would have the number one song on that day. And by the way, if you're wondering, yes, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip did acknowledge America's Bicentennial. They actually visited with President Ford and and there was a state dinner in their honor later in the week on July 7th the queen also brought along a replica of the liberty bell if you look at the pop charts in 1976 and try to read something into them i think the low hanging fruit is that there is no real theme to what was popular and what went to number 1 i do not usually choose to focus only on number 1 songs but I did in this episode because I was struck by how few dominant songs there were. Not that there were none. Silly Love Songs was number one for five weeks. Don't Go Breakin' My Heart by Elton John and Kiki D for four. Disco Lady by Johnny Taylor for four. And then the big one, Rod Stewart's Maggie Mae, it made it to number one on the uh, the Billboard Hot 100 on November thirteenth, nineteen seventy six, and it stayed there for the rest of the year. It wasn't knocked out until January eighth, nineteen seventy seven, uh, with "You Don't Have to Be a Star to Be in My Show" by Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Now we know what's coming: disco and album oriented rock. There will not be much room at all for black artists on the radio or the new kid on the block in, in 1981, MTV. But was America a little less divided in 1976 than it will be in the years to come? Maybe. As we sit here today, we know what's coming, so we have an advantage. We know the country is going to take a right turn politically and socially and become more conservative. The decade that follows, we'll see Ronald Reagan be president for almost all of it. But we didn't exactly know that in 1976. We were conflicted nationally about how we should celebrate this birthday, but I suspect that with our families and within our communities, we were not that conflicted. We may have put on those Stars and Stripes t-shirts and bought those packs of Black Cat fireworks and ate some ice cream and hamburgers and said, let's celebrate. And we had music in the background to soundtrack that and most of the music was just fun and light. Even a protest song like Convoy was first and foremost fun. Stevie Wonder's Black Man was not a hit single. I wish, oozing with nostalgia, that was the hit. And if you believe that music is a reflection of the society that creates it, this is exactly what America wanted on its 200th birthday that is all for this episode of for the record of the 70s all the sources for this episode are on ftr70.com you can follow the show on instagram at 70s podcast if you like what you hear please tell someone bye for now thanks for listening